Welcome to the Faculty Podcast, brought to you by Reformed Theological Seminary in Washington, D.C., part of a 50-plus year endeavor to train pastors and other church leaders in the ministry of the gospel in the United States and around the world. My name is Scott Redd. I'm president and professor of Old Testament here at RTS Washington, and I'm joined by my good friends and colleagues, Dr. Tommy Keene, professor of New Testament and academic dean, our professor of Old Testament and dean of students, Dr. Peter Lee, and our professor of systematic theology, and philosophy, and all thing DC Comics related, Dr. Grace Utanto. Glad Welcome. to be here. <laughs> Good to have you here. Might be time to put the comic book away. Great work. Yeah, yeah, Grace. yeah, we've started great. He's folding up his Dark Knight and sticking in his back pocket. Uh, we're going to continue on in our series of reading strategies. Um, where we're dealing with individual books in the Bible, and we're actually going to dive into the book of Samuel. Yes, I said Samuel, not 1 Samuel or 2 Samuel, but the whole of the book as it comes to us canonically in the Hebrew Scriptures, one book, uh, the book of Samuel. And we're going to talk about that. But before we dive into that, we do want to give a little bit of a teaser of what's coming up. In December, we have uh, an important birthday coming up. Dr. Lee, could you tell us a little bit about whose birthday is coming up in December? Yes. Uh, thank you, Scott. On December 15th of this coming year in 2022, I guess, uh, it's going to mark the 100th year anniversary of, um, of Dr. Meredith Klein. Uh, Dr. Klein was a uh, an Old Testament uh, scholar, theologian, and an ordained pastor in the OPC for uh, for decades, and uh, has a very long, uh, prestigious um, uh, teaching ministry and uh, publishing ministry. And so, if he were still with us, he'd be a hundred years old this uh, coming uh, December. Uh, and just given the impact that he has made on so many people like myself and, and you know, you, Scott, and, and many others, uh, it just seemed appropriate that for his 100th day or 100th year that we spend some time reflecting on his work, the impact he made, and um, the, contri- the contributions that he has made to the area of uh, biblical theology uh, because it, it is uh, really profound. Yeah. Yeah, I didn't have him as a professor, but his influence over me, particularly going into Old Testament, was profound. He's probably one of the most influential, reformed Old Testament scholars of the 20th century, um, and a deeply creative scholar. I remember reading his work and and thinking, wow, like I didn't know you could do this with biblical studies. It was fascinating and uh, opened up, was was broad and magisterial on his treatments of the text. And he'd show its implications for redemptive history and beyond. And and it, he's not just influenced us. Obviously, many of you will have heard his name before, but I, I remember Tim Keller coming down to RTS Orlando and teaching uh, a class in our doctor of ministry program that I got to sit in on. And I remember as he was listing uh, one of his kind of three main influences for his preaching model, Meredith Klein was one of those main influences that is putting the story of scripture into one redemptive story and being able to understand it as one arc, one narrative arc, and that he really got introduced to that through Meredith Klein. So it'll be, it'll be fun to, to delve into that a little bit more. We'll look at some biography, some of his individual contributions, of course, primarily in the area of covenant and covenant theology, um, he was bringing in a lot of those uh, recent archaeological discoveries in uh, in Turkey and beyond and sort of showing the implications of that for 
Old Testament scholarship. And so there's a lot to talk about. And so we'll be diving into that uh, over the course of the fall and into the winter um, and uh, get a chance to sort of sit at his feet and and, and hear him and, and, and talk about his reception too in the broader Old Testament theological world because he's had a huge impact. So let's dive into the book of Samuel. Speaking of Old Testament and redemptive historical books, uh, Samuel, the book of Samuel, dealing with um, the aftermath of the book of Judges. We've already talked about Judges in this setting. And one of the things you may remember that we talked about in terms of Judges is that while it, it depicts this incredible cultural, historical, militaristic decline in the tribes of Israel and Judah, um, it also has this kind of subtext of what kind of king do we need? We, we know we need a king. There's this refrain at the end of Judges in those days, there was no king in the land and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And then so that's, that's not so subtle. You have it as a refrain. In other words, what do we need? A king. Uh, but it's a little more subtle. If you read between the lines, you notice that Judah is the one who keeps going forward on behalf of the Lord and the Lord's people. And Benjamin is often the tribe that is falling short of that, that is getting caught up in carnal concerns that's leading the tribes astray. And so there's this sotto voce, right? This, this soft uh, subtext going on throughout the book. Follow Judah. Be careful of Benjamin, right? And the book comes to an end and we move right into, at least in the Hebrew canon, you move right into the book of Samuel. And Samuel then tells a different arc. It tells a different narratival arc. And Dr. Lee, do you want to start us off on giving us kind of an overview? You teach uh, Judges to Esther. Is that still the way I, we call this class I, in, at RTS? Joshua. Joshua to Esther. Yeah, Joshua to Esther. So you teach Joshua to Esther here at RTS. Um, give us a little bit of an overview of the storyline of Samuel. Yeah, I do a lot uh, and set up Samuel uh, uh, the same way that you did. You can't. You have to read this in the context of Judges, and and uh, by the end of Judges, we're at. Uh, you know, it really can't get any worse in Israel than yeah. it was at the end of Judges. Uh, and in that context where you have moral chaos, uh, worship chaos, everyone's do there is no law. Everyone's doing what is right in their own eyes. You have that repeated. You also have that refrain of um, uh, uh, that there was no king in Israel. So everyone is doing what is right in their own eyes because there is no godly authority figure. And the in implication then at the end of Judges is we just had a king then then we'll live happily ever after, in, in a sense. And and it really sets up the book of Samuel and the rise of now of an earthly king, an earthly monarch. Uh, and then the transition of Israel from uh, judgeship to kingship. Uh, and, uh, and that's how you begin. Uh, you have then the introduction of Samuel. He's not a king per se, uh, but he is really the forerunner for the office of the king, the, the prophet, a priest in a manner of speaking, a judge. Um, and he is the one who introduces the first king, who is Saul. Now, that's a little weird. Uh, I, don't, I don't know how to explain that, really. It sort of sets up for a pro-Judah element, Scott, as you just said. But it starts off with Benjamin instead of David. Um, so you have an introduction to Samuel, chapters 1 through 7. You have the um, introduction to Saul in chapters 8 through 12. 
And it's interesting there in 8 to 12, you know, it's not all bad. Saul actually has some fairly redeeming qualities to him. He is victorious. He, he seems like a reasonable guy at times. Then others, he falls short. So, you know, we can't get on the anti-Saul bandwagon too quick. But Samuel doesn't do that. It does have a sense in which, you know, the office is a good office, even if you have a wicked king, so to speak. Right. And it seems to set up that type of narrative by having Saul there in chapters 8 through 12. Then chapters 13 to 15, it's all anti-Saul. There's there's nothing good about him. And you're starting to see the real decline uh, of Saul. The way that he's described there, you, you really have to compare it back to the book of Deuteronomy. Uh, back to Deuteronomy 17, the section that describes the office of the godly king. And you really start to see how Saul is falling short of that in chapters 13 to 15. By the end of 15, you have then the rejection of Saul, the Lord now has moved and transitioned and is now looking for a new king with a circumcised heart, so to speak. Um, and it is interesting there, and you know, something that uh, systematic theologians, and we really benefit from their thoughts on this, where it says that the Lord regretted that he made Saul king. Uh, but then later in chapter 15, it says that, you know, but God doesn't regret like a man. And, and Back in the uh, early 20, uh, 2000s, when open theism, if you remember that, was such a big thing, that was one of their go-to texts to talk about the about the mutability of God, that God changes his mind. And they're looking at texts like that as sort of evidence to uh, support uh, their cause. But chapter 16, then, now you have introduction to David. And from chapter 16 to 31, the end of 1 Samuel, it's all the David narratives. And that's where you get the stories of David, Goliath, David, the loyal servant, David running for his life. The Saul is becoming increasingly paranoid and um, increasingly not stable. Uh, so by the end of uh, Samuel, you have about as negative a picture of Saul as you can get and as about as positive a picture of David as you can get. Uh, Saul is then killed in battle as we begin 2 Samuel. Uh, and David mourns over Saul, his son, Jonathan, and then you have the establishment of David in chapter, 2 Samuel chapters 1 through about 10. Just a, I mean, it's a fairly quick summary, you know, just a little highlights here and there. And the most outstanding thing in that section, of course, is the, is the Davidic covenant in chapter 7. 2 Samuel chapter 7 is the altogether important messianic covenant of David. You know, all, almost all sources of messianic thinking starts and begins almost right there in 2 Samuel chapter 7. Uh, from chapter uh, 10, 2 Samuel 10, 11, right around there to the end, is all the Bathsheba, Uriah, the, re the rebellion of Absalom. And so it is interesting as, as you see the supernatural rise of power to David, his, his, his placement of king is by divine uh, blessing. And as soon as he's established in the narrative of kings, what does he do? He violates a woman. He kills her husband. His son, he can't keep his house in order. His son is rebelling against him. Um, and, um, you know, David is saved by that and, and still redeemed. But you do have this sort of interesting picture um, of David. So if you see the flow of the history of salvation, you know, Book of Judges sets up a pro-Judah, pro-David element. Then you get David. And then you realize maybe that's not what we need. We need something better. So there is this sort of, uh, this sort of heavenly eschatological push, even at the end of Samuel, that as Dave, great as David may have been, David really wasn't that great. We need someone better.
Yeah. On the point of structure, it really is amazing how well-structured this book is. You start with an introduction uh, of this young woman struggling in the midst of her family to have a son, right? That's the introduction. And it culminates in her receiving the son that she was had been praying for, and she rejoices in song. And that's that's Hannah's song in First Samuel two. So she can go to the end of the book, and there's a denouement at the end of the book about David. But right before that ending, right before it closes, and and for in Second Samuel two twenty two and twenty three, you have David's song. So you have this kind of song that introduces the story and song that closes the story. In the midst of that. You basically have in First Samuel, as you pointed out, you've got this comparison of Saul and David. And, and the author is begging you to compare them right, too, right? right? I mean, they're both anointed in private, ratified in public, right? They're both set up to be kings. And yet one, uh, according to the prophet Samuel, who was kind of the last judge, first royal prophet, uh, Samuel says, what Saul, your problem is not that you're too arrogant. It's not that you think too highly of yourself. It's that you think too little of yourself. You, you're, you're, you're fighting for tribal control. And Samuel says something kind of remarkable to Saul after Saul's failure. He says, the Lord was going to give you a kingdom forever. I mean, imagine that. I mean, talk about the open theism discussion. The Lord had intended, right, for Saul to be the king. And yet Saul has abdicated his role. Okay, so now it goes to David. How does David act? Unlike unlike Saul, David is a man after God's own heart, and that comes out in a variety of stories. All of those stories, David and Goliath, uh, David's faithfulness uh, in, in the face of Saul's persecution, all of those stories are showing us what it looks like to be a man after God's own heart, even down to failure. When Saul fails, what does he do? He makes excuses when David fails what does he say when he's finally convicted he says have mercy upon me i have sinned you know there's no excuse you know showing you again what does it look like to be a man after god's own heart a person after god's own heart so first samuel is about david versus saul second samuel as you said is about the arc of david's reign ending with his sin with bathsheba and his murder of uriah and then interestingly just to kind of finish on this on the on the structural part it begins this cycle, doesn't it, of sexual sin, loss of a son, sexual sin, loss of a son. It happens with his son, with Bathsheba. The first one dies, right? Then it moves on to Amnon, and you have the sexual sin uh, of Amnon's rape of Tamar. That then ends with Amnon's death. Then you have Absalom's, yeah. right? You have another, in the, in the, in the real, the, the bottom, the worst part of Absalom's story is the taking of his father's concubines in public right death of absalom and then here's the interesting this is the point with the structure the story that cycle continues into kings right Mm. because then you have adonijah and adonijah claims the you know the concubine of his father which samuel solomon rather recognizes is an attempt to take have, have a claim to the throne and it ends with the death of a son again, which again shows you kind of nice literary knitting together of these books. You can't pull Samuel and Kings apart, just like you can't pull judges and Samuel apart. Yeah. That made me, uh, you know, as, as y'all were talking, I, I was writing down a couple of questions about kind of related to authorship and title and, and things like that. Does, you know, all the, 
Old Testament historical narratives are, from a literary perspective at least, anonymous. Um, do we should we be concerned about author? Does that help us interpret the book? Date, time, provenance—all of those kind of classic uh, uh, historical kinds of questions. Does that help us interpret the book? And then related to that, why is it called Samuel? Um, <laughs> why not a tale of two kings? <laughs> what does uh, what does Samuel have? The impact that yeah, early, Samuel's role has on the kind yeah, of second, reading process. There's at least one Second Temple Jewish tradition that holds that Samuel's the author of it, and he wrote the stories prophetically, right? Because the name is Samuel; he's the mm -hmm. main prophet in it. Um, yeah, of course, probably, I don't think we, we don't yeah. need to hold that view. Yeah, that's probably where the name of the book came from. But uh, yeah, you see, when it comes to authorship of New Te or Old Testament text. It, it's a little different than than we what we have in new where you know you have actually oftentimes a very specific author that you can trace his thinking his writing style super great that the New Testament does that I agree it's really helpful uh, other than maybe Moses uh, uh, and David for the Psalms um, we we don't really have that in 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 the Old Testament that at least at that specific level now, I think we can say confidently the writer of Samuel probably was a prophet. Um, and uh, since historical writing in the ancient world tended to be for covenantal or, or legal purposes, um, in the sense of Samuel, and, and I think you have to read Samuel, King, Judges, Samuel, Kings, kind of all as a package, uh, though it was probably written to a certain degree within uh, David's prominence, or Solomon's day right around there, the, the ultimate final form as, as we have it was probably uh, in the time of the exile. And part of the purpose of the book of Samuel is to explain how did we end up in yeah. exile. Uh, in that sense, the, the only way to really answer that question is to see the covenant violation. You know, we're in exile because we broke the covenant. What covenant are we talking about? We're talking about the Duke book of Deuteronomy. Yeah. This is why everything kind of goes back to Deuteronomy, we're not. I'm not making that up. It, it's the way the Bible is written, and so, uh, and that's probably also the reason why the Samuel narrative, the King's narrative, tends to be very graphically negative in its portrayal of Israel's history, because it's trying to explain the exile. The uh, so, if you're going to try to explain to a community who has gone through the trauma of being removed from their ancient homeland, from the presence of God, uh, the explanation cannot be because Marduk is more powerful, uh, the Babylonian god who, who exiled them. The answer has got to be, is something else. So what is the answer? The answer is because back in Deuteronomy, God said that if you break this covenant, this is going to happen. Your history, and that then the prophets are writing down the history of Israel, is evidence to show that you have violated this covenant. So you could see Deuteronomy kind of point by point in Israel's history on how they violated the book or the covenant, and thus that's thus the explanation of uh, the the exile. This is also the reason why I think David's portrayal in, in Samuel is so interesting. There's a line I think in First Kings 15 that says uh, that King so and so uh, followed in the, uh, in the footsteps of David, who's like the gold standard of all godly kings, and and it says that David is the gold standard of all godly kings. Except for the Uriah thing, I think is what it says. So it's interesting how, you know, David's 40 plus year reign, he had this one rather, all right, significant glitch. 
this rather uh, negative incident with the Bathsheba, Uriah, and the Absalom rebellion, kind of the three really kind of has to be packaged together. Uh, and, uh, and that's the one negative mark in his entire 40-year reign. But that's the one thing that Samuel focused on. It doesn't talk about anything else. It doesn't talk about his wars, his battles, his uh, way he stabilized the perimeter of Israel. He doesn't describe any of the uh, any uh, social infrastructure work, if he did any of that, any building projects, if David did any of that. If he did, it doesn't record anything. I mean, half of the book of Samuel is dedicated to this one massive era error in David's life. Uh, and again, the reason for that is because the exile, you know, we are in exile because we violate the covenant. Why did we violate the covenant? Because these are the kings and the leaders that we had. People like David, Solomon, you know, Rehoboam, Manasseh, and so forth. And, uh, and the leadership, in other words, like the book of Judges, is not the part of the solution. They were part of the problem. And, and so authorship, I think, is helpful in terms of kind of getting at the prophetic lawsuit type of idea that the prophets oftentimes used. And, mm -hmm. and the history of Israel is uh, the legal evidence to uh, explain why, you know, they're suffering uh, exile. And then the message of the book of Samuel then, like the entire thing, is exactly what, you know, what Scott teaches in his prophets class. You're in, you are in exile because you sin, but if you repent, the Lord will restore you. And that's the end, kind of the message at the end of the book is mm -hmm. repent. That's what you need to do. You, you're here. It's not too late. Just repent of your sins and the Lord will restore you. you see. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's interesting. I think a lot of Christians think, well, we believe that these events must have been written down right after they happened. I think that's kind of the sort of general disposition. This must have been written back in the time of David and Goliath. And it's like you said, um, it's that's often the case. And, and these stories probably were recorded in some way back then as well. But just like Moses reflecting on the events of Abraham for the sake of an, ex, uh, an exodus and conquest audience, right? Um, these events are probably gathered together. It seems like the, clo the close reading of these of these histories indicate that this is probably written, like as you said, around the time of the exile, and it's taking these very important stories and writing them and telling them in a way that's significant for that exilic audience. And there's not a canon. There's no there's no authorship line in terms of uh, that's what I mean by a canon. There's not a canon in terms of authorship. There's not a standard belief in terms of the authorship, these are anonymous. And um, I've heard people speculate, but every every proposal I've heard is just that, it's speculation, you know? Um, and so what do we do? We do read it in context of what it indicates to us. And that, that, would, that would point to the end of Kings with Jehoiakim in exile being lifted up to a position of authority in the Kings, in, in the, the Babylonian King's court. And that that's probably some, something, it says something to the timing of these texts. And that helps us read them a little bit differently too. As you said, the pointing to re redemption, the pointing to a hope in a king who will be a man after God's own heart and will succeed where David and Solomon failed. Even in terms of 1 Samuel 4, the Ark captivity story where the Ark is taken into Philistia, um, that story is told as like a mini exile. Right. Right. 
They're going to take the glory of God. This is how Ezekiel and Jeremiah described exile. The glory of God has gone out. Um, the glory of God is going to go into captivity. It will have the victory there and it will return, right, with those gold uh, emblems, <laughs> you know, on, on the cart with the oxen. He's going to plunder those who plundered us and the glory will come back to the land. And if you read that story as a foreshadowing story, of exile that's to give hope to israelites in exile or coming out of exile this is how the lord's operated in the past too you can take hope out of these stories of old Mm -hmm. and see how the lord is not powered over by um dagon you know or the philistines or the foreign nations but god himself has the victory even in his captivity he's the victor there's a interesting hermeneutical point there i i think to make that you mentioned, you know, we assume that these stories must be recorded contemporaneous to the events or, or roughly contemporaneous to the events. And the supposition, I think, is often that if the, if it's not, if there's some distance between the event and it's it being written down, we're losing something that, that might reflect on some sort of, you know, historical inaccuracy that's often re- repeated yeah. you know repeated line in the gospels they have to be early because unless they're early they're not going to be accurate that gives it time for like myth to kind of in, enter in when in actuality we do need those eyewitness reports we need to know about how these things went down from people who were there but you often don't understand the significance of what's going on until much later Mm-hmm. Maybe even hundreds of years later from the the event in question, and J- Jesus, in fact, tells the disciples, you know, um, in the in his high priestly prayer, you know, y- you don't understand now because the resurrection hasn't happened yet. We, you, yeah. you, it'll it'll that'll make things clear both because the Holy Spirit will come, but because you'll see how this story ends and where it's yeah. heading and it's telos, and uh, so it's a helpful. Not only, I think, for understanding Samuel, but tracing Samuel into the New Testament. I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. Like, how does this storyline find fulfillment? There's some obvious ways. Jesus is the greater David, right? That the storyline of the kingships of Israel finds fulfillment in the New Testament. But you know, how do we kind of think about these things as that story continues on into uh, the New Testament era, the New Covenant? Well, how, why should I care about this as a New Covenant Christian, the, the failure of the kings of Israel? Yeah, that's really good. I would, real quick on you, at that point, I think you're absolutely right. Just to use the example of the Ark Covenant, the Ark Captivity, that's a blip in Israel's history. That's an interesting historical trivia point. Right. Oh, remember that? There was that period of time when the Ark was in Philistia. Remember that? And it never went back to Shiloh after that. That's interesting. But you don't see it in its grander significance mm-hmm. of showing how the Lord operates Jeremiah makes this point in his temple sermon. He says, don't think that because you have the temple here in Jerusalem, that means Jerusalem can't fall. He says, don't say temple, Lord, temple, Lord, temple, Lord. And then notice what he says there. He says, go back to Shiloh. That's where the, that's where the sanctuary used to be before the ark captivity. And he tells them that's a, that's a historical precedent for what you're about to see happen here in exile. And that's a great point that oftentimes it's not until you have great a greater perspective that you can understand the significance of an event. Even if you're citing, as the as the historians do in Samuel and Kings, they're they're often citing you know, the annals of the kings of Judah and the annals of the kings of Israel and Chronicles 
references the prophet Edu, this poor guy who mm. is only mentioned by name. We don't get his book, but apparently it was a big deal. Um, so, you know, you have these sources that they're referencing and yet they're compiling them in that, in that, with that redemptive historical perspective. Um, yeah, I think in terms of New Testament, Peter, can I, let me throw that to you. Now that I've given you a little time to ruminate on that question, you have some thoughts? I better. <laughs> Agreed. I mean, I guess one of, I mean, to f- maybe focus the question, you know, like the, the kingship storyline, the, you know, God's search for a king who will rule after his own heart. Yeah. That, that yeah. clearly kind of, we have clear New Testament speaking about that. I, you know, but some of those aspects of the narrative tend to drop off as a result, like whatever happens to the Benjamites and how should I think about the, you know, the, the failure of the, you know, other than the fact that they failed. How do I think about the failures of the kings of Israel in New Testament terms? How is that useful for me as a believer in Jesus? I mean, I think that's a great question. There's a broader redemptive historical thing that Moses has laid out in Deuteronomy, which is the guiding principle for these stories, which is that there's going to be a, a precipitous sin that will lead the people into exile. And then as, 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 Moses says in Deuteronomy 30, you'll come back to this place and enjoy a better experience than your forefathers did. And in many ways, Samuel Kings, Judges Samuel Kings is is relating that story of how do we get to the restoration kingdom that's going to be better. We want the better situation than what Joshua Mm -hmm. and the others had. And so Samuel is explaining how that happens. And in that explaining, we're learning all of these theological motifs that help us understand our world too. I think it's key that all of Israel fails, even their ideal king, David, falls short of the glory of God. It tells us we need another. We need a true ideal. But not only that, all of Israel, it's not, I mean, Benjamin, uh, Benjamin is within the people, and yet it's not just Benjamin that fails, okay? So you learn, um, you learn that Israel, that is the firstborn of God, as Moses calls Israel, um, is not delivering in the way that the Lord calls them to covenantally. So it reminds us that we need a true Israel. This is using Isaiah's suffering servant language. When Isaiah talks about the suffering servant, he says he's talking about Israel. We need an Israel who isn't broke down like the Old Testament Israel is. We need a new Israel. We need a true vine, not that old vineyard that bore only um, sour grapes. Um, But I think ultimately, I mean, the author of Hebrews takes it to, our individual experiences of faith that even in the midst of our deep failures and flaws, the Lord is at work bringing about mighty works through faith, the faith, the saving faith of his people. And the author of Hebrews, when he recalls the old Testament, as we mentioned before with judges, you know, he lifts up, he mentions names that we might be surprised, make it into his memory, his, his, uh, his memorial, uh, text about the heroes of the Old Testament. And I think it's reminding us that God is continually working because he has an ideal king in Christ and we're united to Christ. Um, it reminds us that God is doing things way beyond our own gifting and our own strength and in spite mm-hmm. of our failures because Jesus Christ has been the righteousness of God for us. And yeah. so this is how God chooses to build his kingdom, both in, in the Old Testament and the New yeah, Tom, I, I actually appreciate the question pushing a little bit beyond just the um, 
uh, you know, beyond the more academic to the uh, to the uh, to the lay members that are out there. You know, what would this mean? And 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 I guess um, the way I guess I try to answer it a lot a lot in lines with with what Scott was just saying is is to maybe not de-emphasize the um, the Jesus is a better David type thing, but to actually enforce it all the more. Because if you think about it, the end of the book of Samuel, you're, you're kind of left a little bit with this kind of quandary. Here we've been setting up that we need a, a king at the end of Judges. We got the king, but it isn't the happily ever after that we thought it was going to be. In fact, at the end of the book of Samuel, you're kind of left with this question you know, it's interesting when you do the Saul David comparison, you actually see that they're actually quite similar. Uh, the way that David uh, kills off Uriah, remember, is by sending him into the front lines of battle. But that's exactly what Saul did to David to try to kill off David. It mm. didn't work. It mm. actually backfired and gave David that much more praise and glory. But in the back of your mind, you kind of see David with this. You know, this isn't a bad idea type thing. I'm going to yeah, kind I of lock it. it. I learned away. it from watching you, <laughs> right? And he does it, and, and you're kind of left with that question is, you know, are we really better off? Is Israel better off with David than Saul? And in one sense, no, you're not. I mean, they're, they are both corrupt. Uh, David has, um, you know, through the Me Too movement, you know, here's where you get this sort of interesting um, interaction of faith and culture where it has now helped us understand the sin of David against Bathsheba. That was not consensual. That wasn't Huge adultery. Huge power differential there. Yeah, you know this was probably violent. What David did, it was it was egregious and horrible. Um, you know he covers that up by not repenting. You know, just like Saul doesn't repent, he tries to cover that up. You know, um, De uh, Saul uh, tried to attempt murdering a faithful soldier. David does the same thing. You know, you you're really left with this kind of question. And uh, and you realize that with David, we really aren't in many ways kind of better off. But in another sense, we are um, because of the covenant of David and that promise that God made. Uh, and, and that really is sort of the difference between the two. Ultimately, David is repented. We know that. Saul is not. And, and there's, thus, there's the optic lesson. Mm. You know, you're in exile. What do you need to do? Be like David and repent, not like Saul who didn't. Um, but to the exilic community, I, I suspect they're thinking, well, you know, um, uh, we had pretty bad leadership. That's how we ended up in exile. But what we really need is, is better, a godly, ideal leadership. But in many ways, even that's not good enough if you think about it, because after all, our hearts are still the same. I mean, if it happened once, it's going to happen again. Okay. So whether we're restored or not... What we really need is the kind of kingly leadership that can do something that no king previously could do, and that is now to change the human condition, change the human heart. And uh, and that's where you're starting to see now kind of priestly themes integrated in with the royal themes and, and of, a greater, of a better and greater priesthood. But now we're talking, as you know, because of the book of Hebrews, we're not talking about just a better Aaron because Aaron, because the Aaronic office is problematic right from the very beginning. They have to offer regular cycles of, of sacrifices. Aaron himself has to offer sacrifice for himself. We, we need a different priesthood, mm -hmm. not just a better Aaron. 
Uh, and thus we have that in this sort of priestly royal figure in, in Melchizedek, uh, which is, you know, very Davidic um, as well. So I'd say the, the takeaway from a New Testament reader's perspective is that what we have in the greater David is not just a greater king. We actually have a greater priest who mm. is a king mm. who can do what no person could do before. And that is now transform and renovate the human heart. That's great. But we've introduced this idea, by the way, before we close out, I want to address the apologetic discussion about God's knowing of the future, because we've mentioned it a couple of times and we need to say a word about it. So what do we do? It's not, and it's not just in these, this book, it's throughout the old Testament and in the new. And you said, when you see places like uh, the Lord says, I am grieved that I did this, or I regret that I did this. I regret that I made Saul King. Uh, or uh, you know, I'm going to start over again, uh, Moses, with just you. I'm going to wipe out the rest of Israel and start over again, just out of your seed. Yeah. This idea is of God. This idea of God in some way regretting or grieving things, as if maybe He didn't know on on the front end how things were going to turn. What What do we do with? Yeah, that? I was going to ask that question because you know the question of the uh, immutability of God is still a relevant question that people are and theologians are still wrestling over today. Uh, and I don't know, I think it's more discussed theologically, but there does seem to be some exegetical evidence to suggest it. And so, you know, how do we work around that is, is really an, it is really a very important and relevant question in terms of our doctrine of God. And, and the book of Samuel is, uh, in one sense, sort of a test case battleground to, to do so. Well, I think the responses that you all have been giving about the book of Samuel and the way in which it points to Jesus gives us a little glimpse of the answer, right? That none of this took God by surprise, but rather as he was setting up the Davidic kingdom and promising this covenant to David in 2 Samuel 7, he's actually anticipating the coming of Jesus Christ, this greater king. So there's a reason why God has allowed the kingship of Saul to run the way that it has and the way in which David's fall even didn't take God by surprise, right? Ultimately, the point us to the greater Messiah in Christ Jesus, who is the greater David, the greater Moses, the greater Adam, and so on. So I think even by, by pointing to that sort of reality, you're already indicating that God is not taken by surprise. Everything goes according to his plan. And yet, even while everything goes according to his decree, the history is merely the temporal outworking of an eternal decree. Um, he still does not disapprove of particular he still does not approve, sorry, of particular events that actually take place, right? Key example of this, the cross of Christ itself. Um, Acts 4, 27 to 28, a very principial sort of text for us, I think, that even though Jesus Christ was delivered according to the hand and plan of God, predestined by God, Acts 4, 27, 28 says, yet he still calls all of the Jews, all of the Roman soldiers to repentance. So on the one hand, God predestined Christ to be um, lifted up on the cross to die this shameful death. And yet at the same time, he disapproves of the very people who betrayed Christ, who did this against him. This was an, a terrible sin. So God disapproves of it in terms of his moral will. And yet it still falls in accordance with his decreed will. And I think one of the things that I say in my doctrine of, of God class or systematic theology, one scripture, theology proper, anthropology is that when you're taking a look at the biblical text, therefore, we have to interpret the texts about God's being as having logical priority over the texts on God's working or God's sort of relative acts with creation. So who God is in and of himself has to have logical priority such that we 
the way we understand this acts is by understanding the God who is first. And so you mentioned the text like 1 Samuel 15, 28, God is not like a man that he should have regret. Uh, there's also other passages that, that really indicate that God's being, the reason why he's not like a creature is because in him there is no variation or shadow due to change. Uh, James 1, 17. Um, Numbers 23, 19. Uh, God does not change at all, right? And so when we take a look at these passages and we, we align them up in accordance with the divine name as disclosed in Exodus 3, 14, that he is who he is. Nothing outside of God therefore causes God to be God. Nothing outside of God coerces God for God to act. He's not a reactive God. He's impassable. That's the classical reading of that passage. We recognize that however we should interpret God asking Adam into in the garden, where are you? What have you done? Right? Or God now uh, showing his disapproval of Saul. It must not be the same sort of regret and same sort of surprise that humanity has. Uh, humanity, uh, we're taken by surprise all the time, and we we never foresee these things. But God, however, um, disapproves of these actions, of course, uh, and yet he never was taken by surprise, right? He's immutable and so forth. So I think we should keep in mind, again, those passages that the, on the ontological trinity, in other words, precedes the economic trinity. And so uh, God's self-existence, who God is in and of himself, has to take pre precedence over God's acts. I think that's a that's a brief answer to that. Yeah. And it also authorizes us as Christians to speak to God, pray to God, wait mm -hmm. on the Lord, mm -hmm. um, and not just merely say, well, because of his ontology, right. I, I can have no relationship in history with him or something like that. The Bible is authorizing us to come to the Lord as we are able to come to him. Yeah, well, in fact, his immutability and his aseity gives us assurance because whatever God says he will do, he will immutably do. Yeah, right. right. And so uh, this, this doctrine of the simplicity of God, it's actually founded in scripture. I would argue that God is not composed of parts. He's independent. But also um, it, it helps us to see the scripture interpret scripture, that the less clear passages about God's actings and dealings within history has to be interpreted by virtue of the clearer statements about who God is, as Scripture indicates him to be. But that's, I think, hugely helpful. I mean, we can't take one text isolated on its own. Um, we have to develop a full systematic doctrine of God based on all relevant texts yep. and allow, um, uh, allow it uh, a, a more um, unclear text to be read in light of the greater systematic construct but that's still based on exegesis and, right and i think that's an important way uh, to try to uh to, to see that uh, you see this is one reason why um it, it's so helpful to to see uh guys doing biblical studies at the level of exegetical work like this be systematicians as well because mm -hmm. it yeah. really protects um the the clarity and the and the potential problematic conclusions you can make mm -hmm. if you isolate a text on its own as opposed to read it in the fuller context of a full-blown theological doctrine uh, yeah. of God idea. And, you know, or else you could be reading God walking in the garden and say, God has a body, therefore, which wouldn't make any sense because creation involves the creation of anything that is material. So God's existence precedes the creation of the material realm. And we also have other passages that is very clear about the spirituality of God or the incorporeality of God. God is spirit. He is invisible. He is light in himself, right? So all those passages, again, help us read those other passages that talk about God walking in the garden, God appearing in the form of an angel, things like that. These are not um, talking about God ontologically. 
Yeah. It's why, you know, to discuss scripture like this is best done in the context of a seminary where we can have the uh, dialogue of multiple different system, uh, uh, disciplines, you know, uh, basic uh, exegetical analysis with a theological setting uh, in passages mm -hmm. like that. And, and you get the full robust revelation of God by seeing the integration of different methods of theological study kind of come together. Mm -hmm. I feel like that's a good advertisement for the faculty podcast. Amen. At RTS Washington. I, I, well, you know, I believe in it. So yeah. Like and subscribe. <laughs> there you go. That's great. And if you'd like to continue this conversation, we'd love to have you in classes that are going on just about any given weeknight uh, this fall. So come and join us. Uh, if you'd like to learn more about RTS, come to rts.edu forward slash Washington. And you can start a conversation about how to come and take classes here. And if you'd like to post a question to the faculty podcast, we've had a few coming in and we're going to answer them in future episodes. We'd love to have you post a question to us. You can just go to the link in the show notes uh, for this episode. And it's been great having this conversation with you all. I've benefited a whole lot from it. I look forward to our next one. Until then, take care. This is how God chooses to build his kingdom, both in, in the Old Testament and the New. <clears throat> Excuse me. Boy. Um, what was I going to say? When you mentioned Hebrews, got my mind going. Now I can't remember where it was going. Oh, I remember, I think. Um